You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Margaret Atwood. Hello. Hello, is this Margaret Atwood? It is. Hello, Margaret. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. Hello, Paul. How are you today? You know, I'm definitely alive today. How are you? Good. Alive is better. It, 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 it definitely beats the alternative, since it was Groucho Marx's <laughs> birthday, I think, a couple of days ago. It, it definitely does. Where am, I, where am I reaching you? I'm in Toronto. And is this an office space, or is it... Office space. And... and I, I couldn't quite understand what company this is that I'm calling. You're calling my company. Oh, it is your company, I see. And what am I interrupting at this moment? Uh, you're interrupt- interrupting nothing because I booked the space for you. Yeah, what, have you, what did you do earlier today? Earlier today I met with a uh, person who's going to help us raise funds for bird conservation. You know, that makes me think um, so much of a quotation I read a couple of days ago, which made me think of you. And it's a quotation from Margaret Mead, who who, um, who said, why, why are you laughing? Tell me. I'll tell you in a minute why I'm laughing. <laughs> oh, okay, so I'll, I'll mention the quotation to you, and then you tell me why you're laughing, and I'd love you to comment on it. It's really short. Um, You probably know that I suffer from quotomania, but in this particular case, I just couldn't keep myself from mentioning this to you. She says, we won't have a society if we destroy the environment. We won't have a species if we destroy the environment, because if we kill the oceans, uh, which make 60 to 80 percent of the oxygen we breathe, we'll all choke to death. So, um, I see your Margaret Mead and raise you 10. Um, you, you, you just did. I mean, and I think she probably would have taken well to um, your, your commentary on her quotation and wouldn't have but, felt that it was an exaggeration. I remember so clearly um, my, my own father, who spent the war years in Haiti, there was a very small Jewish community in Haiti, was so always talking to me about le déboisement, the fact that there were nearly no trees and that by ruining, by, by cutting down all the trees in Haiti, one had thwarted the, the country of any future possibility. True, because when you cut down all the trees in a country that's shaped like that, you're going to get massive erosion. Yeah. Uh, the topsoil washes away, and it is those tree and plant systems that hold water in the soil, so you're also going to get very arid conditions. So this all um, speaks to you, obviously, quite quite powerfully, and the meeting you had this morning must be going in, in, in that direction as well. Yes, well, we've worked with conservation groups for very many years. In fact, I grew up in a family that were early conservationists. They were early Sierra Club people, and Ontario Field Naturalists and a lot of other things because my father was a forest entomologist and he knew these things quite early. So you know the names of trees? I know the names of trees in my immediate vicinity. 
but there are a huge number of trees uh, all over the world, the names of which I do not know. You know, I, I look at trees and I, I know so little and I feel so sorry that I don't. I know it's a, 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 a lack that I could um, change, but I think in so many ways... This is something you grow up with. Um, I remember speaking with W.S. Merwin, and he spoke so eloquently and so beautifully and wrote such extraordinary poems about the names of trees. Or Clive James, who wrote this incredible poem, poem called Japanese Maple. And I look at trees and I, don't, I, I find them gorgeous and beautiful, but I don't know who they are. Well, I think there's an app that's been made just for you, and I think it's called oh. What's That Tree. Really? <laughs> it might also like a book called The Hidden Life of Trees, which is by a German, and it's on the bestseller list right now. And uh, uh, Graham is reading it. He finds it quite enchanting, and it's about how trees actually communicate with one another, help one another, uh, and fend off attackers and predators. So the Greeks, who thought that trees were dry as and, and alive and conscious, may have been um, more right than we have thought. It's amazing. So this is called the... the Hidden Life of Trees. How fantastic. And I don't have the name of the author in front of me right now, but you can find it quite easily. Yeah, no, I, 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 certainly, I certainly will, and I look for, I look for it. Um, it's it's trees matter to me greatly in part also i was mentioning my father because my mother when she became very ill what she missed first were trees and did you put her in contact with them um not enough not enough right not enough and uh i guess you can tell from my response that i say this was a certain amount of regret. You feel a bit guilty. I feel more than a little bit guilty, and I know that guilt is something you specialize in. Uh, not personally. Not, I know, but... <laughs> <laughs> not, of course not personally, but you write about it, and you write about vengeance, and you write about these kinds of feelings that are, are very, in a, in a way, very quick, that one can quickly elicit, because I think we, we all carry in us... Very primal. Uh, uh, yeah, very primal. And when you say that, Margaret, it's amazing. Um, there's real regret. Regret at not having shown her those trees. You know, I was thinking also, but since I mentioned Merwin earlier, that he says on the last day of the universe, what he would want to do would, would be to plant a tree. Oh, that's very nice. Isn't it? Well, since it's the last day of the universe, the tree would not have any time to grow. This is true. But you know, um, there's a whole green graveyard movement going on now. I don't know about it. Uh, well, we we stumbled in somehow in the late 19th, early 20th century. We stumbled into the old Egyptian habit of embalming people and then uh, putting them on display and burying them in very expensive uh, chemical-filled um, containers. So the green graveyard movement is going back to the old idea of, of into the earth and become a tree. This is so interesting. My goodness, can you? Who would have known that 
the beginning of our conversation, based on, on Margaret Mead, which made you laugh, would lead us in this direction, which of course... Boy, brings, it made me laugh. Yes, of course. You, 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 can, you can tell what my question will be. So why did it? Okay, so a long time ago, we uh, acquired a house on an island in the middle of Lake Erie called Peely Island, which is a famous bird migration stopover point and is the southernmost part of Canada. And a friend of mine who was then alive came to me in great glee and said, Oh, everybody's so excited. They're saying the gossip is going around that Margaret Mead has just got a place on the island. Margaret Mead at that time had been t dead for 10 years. <laughs> I, I, that's I that, that is a fantastic story. <laughs> that is just magnificent. You know, the Italians always say, si non è vero, è ben trovato. If it isn't true, it's a well... But it is, it, is, it, it, really, it really happened to you. Yes, that, it did. That is, uh, were, you, were you a reader of Margaret Mead? Yes, yes, we all read Margaret Mead when we were teenagers. Because I, I um, you know, when I stumbled upon this quotation and thought of you, I thought, my goodness, I haven't read her in two, maybe three decades. And it's worthwhile a revisit. It certainly is. I mean, everything that I read of hers... Everything, not everything she was told during her research was apparently true. True. That, I, I think there was a book about this not so long ago. That's uh, what you would expect. I yes. Mean, if I had an anthropologist coming around, I'm sure I'd tell them some whoppers. Uh, <laughs> well, of course, and you know, the, her, famous, her famous other line that I very much like is, which I think s would speak also to perhaps the way you conduct yourself in the world, where she says that, um, now I'm, I'm quoting this from memory, something like a small group of people could change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever really has. Uh, well... Not sure, you're, not sure you would agree. A large, small group of people. I think a small group of people can certainly change it for the worse pretty quickly. Um, yeah. It is changing it for the better that is often so difficult. Mm. Uh, especially since your idea of better may be somebody else's idea of worse. It's funny how, how, how your comment here, as short as it is, makes me think of our present political landscape. Now no. we're, we're supposed to be having a happy conversation. I know, I know. Now listen, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, <your laughs> that was very well done. That was very well done. Your alter ego came out beautifully there. Yes, yes. Um, well, you know, I used to have a puppet show when I was a teenager. Well, this I do not know. Oh, so I'm 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 sorry about that. I I I do I do usually try to know as much as I can, but about the puppet show, I know nothing. It, Tell me. Yes, it was one of my early entrepreneurial ventures. I had a partner, and we put on the classics, which are, of course, Little Red Riding Hood, The Three Little Pigs, and Hansel and Gretel. And we chose those because each of them only has um, four characters, uh, five if you can put one of them on a stick, um, on stage at any time. And also because, because these were hand puppets, um, also because that is the main subject of interest for children of about five. It's, it's cannibalism. How fascinating. Will I be gobbled up or not? <laughs> so that's what we did, and we put them on first for at children's birthday parties. 
uh, for which we were grossly underpaid, I now realize. Uh, but we ended up having an agent, and we were putting them on to uh, the kinds of children's holiday parties that companies would throw for the kids of their employees. So we would have a screaming mob of of uh, kids saying, look out, look out, here comes a wolf, no, no, uh, hide quickly, and things like that. Do, do, you, do you think this, this early um, interest influenced you later on? Oh, without a doubt. It seems to me it would have. It gave me an experience of screaming mobs of, of audience members uh, quite early on. Um, but also amateur theatrics have always been a great interest of mine, and that was only one of the amateur theatrical things that I did as a young person. And I'm so interested also in that in many of the events you do now, you you encourage people to to go along with you and put on a show. Oh, yes, we've done that a couple of times. We launched the Penelope ad in England at... Um, a theatrical event in which we did about the first half of the book as a play with uh, Phil and Deloitte actually put it together. Yeah. And um, I was Penelope, and we had three very talented actors or actresses who played all of the other parts. And uh, it was a it was a one off. We only did it once, but it it then turned. I then turned the whole Penelope ad into a play, and that has been done numerous times. So we did that, and we also did a book launch of The Year of the Flood, yeah. 2009, in which we sent a script to whoever was going to put it on, and they assembled a cast of three actors in the singing group, and I turned up to every one of them as the narrator. I love this. I love this because it's a way of, of reanimating... It, re it certainly did, but it was a book launch, so again, we only did about half of the book. Um, because with book launches, you never tell the end, needless to say. Yeah, of course, which, which leads me quite naturally to, um, after I asked you what you were doing before our phone call, uh -huh. which was patiently waiting for me to, to call, and before that, um, trying to, to see what we might do with, with the conservancy of birds, a bird's conservancy, but what are you doing after our phone call? After our phone call, I'm finishing my packing for the book tour that I'm about to embark on in the UK. And you can find those events at margaretatwood.ca under events. I think it'll kill me um, because it's very intense. And it's for Hagseed, which is the Hogarth Shakespeare series uh, revisitation of The Tempest. And then I'm coming right back from that, and I'm doing... An event for you. You are with with Fiona Shaw. How does that feel to you? Fiona Shaw, whom I have seen act, and she is indeed a stellar uh, theatrical personality. So it will be wonderful to discuss this with her. Uh, she has an insider's knowledge, needless to say, and uh, it it will be uh, excellent. Once-in-a-lifetime experience. Well, that's what I, that's really what I wanted to, to provide to you, Margaret, is something, <laughs> no, but truly something that, you know, because, uh, also because I, you know, the, the way you approached rewriting, as it were, The Tempest was... I would never rewrite, I hate that. No, I know, forget the word rewrite. Um, um, re, okay, thank you. 
I, I know I can count on you to correct me, and you're right to do that. We, you know, but 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 truly, I'm we right. I I I feel like slapping my face, but truly, it's wrong. Um, but revisit and the the visitation you you made upon the tempest was one that was very studious. You read it and reread it and re-reread it, and and what came about in these various readings of. You, your favorite writer as... as and various as, viewings, because then yeah. I got all the DVDs of all of the films that I could get that have been made of it, uh, both films made from scratch and filmed uh, pieces of theater, such as the Globe in, in London has a Tempest that they recorded in Stratford Shakespearean Festival in... Canada has one that starred Christopher Plummer. Right. Uh, so I looked at them all, and including the one starring Helen Mirren. Who was the last person here um, in our celebration of Shakespeare's death, because uh, the English also, as you know, celebrate not only the, the birth, but the death. This is the 400th anniversary. Yeah. So I had the incredible pleasure of speaking with Helen Mirren in April, who was... Do anything she wants. And she anything. Any, she was awesome. Very, very wonderful. I was dubious going in. I thought, surely this will not work, but it actually worked very well. Yeah. So what? Tell me this this journey of of revisiting the the play and and why why it is you? Why did I choose the tempest? Yeah. Why you chose the tempest? And also, you know, I'm, I'm as I grow older, I become more and more interested by the relationship between taste and age and what it is that we remain faithful to, what it is that we reread that stands the test of time, um, what we read that is new when we read it at a later, uh, at a la in a later period in our life. And so I'm, I'm curious, since you spent so much time with one play, yeah. what it afforded you? Oh, well, a deep dive, of course. Um, I've seen it a number of times, and I'm, I then re-saw it on film, I reread it, uh, but I had written about Prospero before in my book, originally called Negotiating with the Dead, but now retitled A Writer on Writing. I guess the the D word was... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I love, in, in one of your interviews, you say you, you, you're, you're amused by the title itself because it's really about that, but wasn't it a bit too literal to call it that? Yeah, well, it started out as a, as a group of six lectures that I did at... Uh, Cambridge University in right. England, yeah. and um, the brief was actually quite hard. It was a, it had to be accessible to a general audience, accessible to students, but also accessible to academics, of interest to academics. Very hard. And that was fun to do, and I always like to get Stephen King in, in there, and I've got a little bit of, uh, about Stephen King. Um, but... Uh, Prospero is in the chapter about dubious magicians, which, of course, artists are dubious magicians. I love that term so much. And there are various kinds of dubious magicians, and one kind was represented by the Wizard of Oz, basically a fraud. Uh, although his illusions are very believable, his actual powers as a magician, he has no magic powers, really. He's a, he's a stage magician. And I also used uh, Klaus Mann's Mephisto, and I used Prospero. Um, so 
I had thought about him before, but this time I was thinking about the entire play and questioning the uh, big holes in the plot and the unanswered questions uh, and uh, working on something that would fill those gaps but would also represent uh, in a different form everything that's in the play. It is the closest Shakespeare ever came to writing a character who did what he did. Right. Namely, Prospero is a is a writer, director, actor. <laughs> it's putting on a play, unbeknownst to a number of the people in it, um, with the aid of a special effects person called Ariel. <laughs> so, therefore, in my book called Hagseed, Felix is a deposed... Uh, actor, director, artistic manager who is brooding revenge about the people who deposed him and has the aid of a special effects guy who plays the part of Ariel. And he does his revenge by putting on a production of The Tempest um, in which his enemies are unwittingly uh, compelled to play a part. And... It, all of this takes place in a prison. And why is it a prison? Because everybody in the Tempest um, has been imprisoned or is imprisoned in one way or another throughout the play. Had that, when, you, when you read The Tempest for the first time or the second time, did the, did the image of the prison strike no. you that strongly? Uh, not the first time or the second time. We're, we're more interested in that at that point and and how he's going to pull off the romance between right. Ferdinand and Miranda, right. and, uh, whether he's going to um, forgive these people or basically kill them or drive them crazy forever. Um, so we're interested in his growth as a character, but the the prison is, prisons are a leitmotif, and when you have a play that ends with three words, set me free. I know, I know. You have to immediately then start thinking, Set you free from what? You know, and in what are you, Prospero, imprisoned when you are speaking those words? So at that point, I, I worked backwards, as it were, uh, looking at some of the other unanswered questions, such as, who is Caliban's dad, really? If you're not going to say it was the devil. Who uh, <laughs> actually is <laughs> Uh, but we won't get into that. Yeah, no, 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 no. And 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 in a way, you don't want to say very much more. But but it 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 does answer the question or begins to answer the question of what these these readings um, and viewings added to your comprehension of quite a of lot. this play. Yeah. Yes, quite a lot. I came out of it feeling that I'd answered almost everything. Although something occurred to me in the middle of the night last night. <laughs> Really? I have a satisfactory answer, and it's this. Um, so, the Tempest is an illusion. Ariel tells Prospero that not a hair was harmed and that everybody is safely stowed, um, but that these various people are now on shore. How did the great big cask of liquor get ashore? Goodness me, I can't answer that question, but I can ask you another question, which is... So if he didn't, it, you know, it must have been that Ariel somehow transported it, but we're not really told. But you know, what, what strikes me here is 
And it's a question I've asked several people, or I've wanted to ask several people over the last decade here, which is, you know, what what keeps you up at night? And it would seem evidently that kept me up at night last night. <laughs> isn't that interesting? So, so the the, the resonance that uh, several readings do is in part to to keep you company at night in that way. Oh no, no I, I woke up. I wasn't up already. I just woke up with that thought. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, weirdly. Um, probably because I'm just about to embark on this tour. Tour and. Doubtless somebody's going to say, well, what about that? No, maybe they won't say. Maybe they will now that they've listened to your podcast. Well, it's possible. It's possible they will, but it's also probable that they won't have read it in, you know, with that level of attention, which, which I'm... Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, which, which... Shakespeare, of course, says he, he didn't intend for it to be read. He intended it for it, for it to be acted. Which you know is exactly what Helen Mirren said on stage here, Margaret. She said, you know... It's fine, read it, read it, but please do me the favor of going to see Shakespeare. You must... Well, some of it, when you're reading it, you say, oh, come on, this is not going to be... You can't... Titus Andronicus, when you read it, you, you, you think, this is so over the top. Surely we will all just laugh at these moments. But then when you see it well done, it's so theatrical. And the parts where you thought you would laugh, you're actually just horrified. Isn't this? It's fascinating to me that um, it's fascinating because the the press and the the theatre as something that one reads comes about shortly shortly after Shakespeare's period. Do all the plays begin to be printed and read? Up to that moment, if I'm correct, remembering Walter Ong and other people who have written about that, the plays were mainly seen. Oh, oh, entirely. And and the actors even wouldn't have a full script. They would have their own part. They would know their cues, but they wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't have the kind. They wouldn't have a first folio, uh, or any folio whatsoever. They they wouldn't have the whole play in a book. And you can you can tell that he was working with a, uh, with a group of actors who who were known to be good at this or that. You, you can see, well, he must have had this clown that was very popular, and therefore he wrote in the gravedigger in Hamlet, he wrote in the gatekeeper in Macbeth. Uh, he, had, he had people who were um, known for being good at certain certain things. They knew how to improvise. Yeah, and he, and he put, and he made parts for them. And it's fascinating because once the text is printed, it it becomes um, more rigid, and so that... The it becomes a fet- more of a fetish. And right. With a lot of things in it that we, that we don't necessarily know what they are, probably as a result of typos, for instance, scammels, which is one of the things yeah. that yeah. Caliban is supposed to be good at acting yeah. or providing. <laughs> yeah. Be able to eat them, but nobody actually knows what they were, and I, I had to go around the block quite far to find out what pig nuts were. What are they? I had lazily assumed that they were peanuts, but they're not. Uh, there is a sort of plant, apparently, in Europe that has little nodules on it, and those are p- the pig nuts to which he refers. So it was a real thing, but it wasn't peanuts. Do you, do you enjoy watching magic shows? 
I entirely enjoy watching magic shows. But I can tell you from my experience with entertaining children that magic shows do not work uh, at young ages, I would say five or under, because children of that age see no reason why the rabbit should not come out of the hat. Right. They don't see it as an extraordinary thing that's part of their everyday life. There's a monster under the bed, there's a rabbit in the hat. Uh, So it only works once kids are old enough to figure out that that is impossible whatever it is. Fascinating, again. Um, the, the notion also that, that for children, magic is a, a natural state. Well... And then it, and then it becomes something, yes. something quite different. I'm, I'm always fascinated by that story of how Houdini, once when he was thrown into the Thames, escaped. Um, you know, they, he was virtually naked and chained up. And he, at the very last moment, he kissed his wife, yes. who, who passed the key. Exactly. You know that story, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very, very clever. And it makes you think, is, is, is that why we kiss? That is a very kinky thought. <laughs> it's a funny thought, isn't it? To pass the key. It is a kinky thought. I didn't think that you would mind it, though. Uh, no, it's just very odd. Um, <laughs> Tell me, you must be... Del- no, that is not why we... <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so, <laughs> just to make it clear to everybody who's hearing us, that is... I mean, you can kiss for that reason, but yes. usually you don't. That's true. Um, you must be delighted, Margaret, by the reviews that you're already getting uh, for, for the new book, because it... it I mean, it, just seeing the reviews that are coming out of England... There's so, I mean, Hag Seed has been lauded um, in, a, in a series that is just beginning. It seems that you, you have written the book that will make the whole series work. I mean, we'll see what else comes up, but it, the, the reviews are just spectacular. They, they are. I think it's because I'm old. Well, <laughs> I beg to differ, <laughs> but I beg, to, and I, I, I quite frankly think that you probably, um, you know, my father, when he was 92 years old, people would ask him when he would retire, and he said, I'm too old to retire. <laughs> I, 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 I have a feeling that there's something in common between the two of you. Well, I don't think artists retire. I think they just get worse. Right. Um, but well, they don't well, always get worse. Well, in your case, with this book, it doesn't seem that way at all, um, which, which makes me think, yes, wonderful, the reviews, but the question that didn't go quite answered is, you had all of Shakespeare just about, except for three other plays, in front of you as possibilities. Why The Tempest? Uh, well, I mean, it's a natural. Uh, it's I- a natural for you, you mean? Yeah, it's also a natural thing to be made into a into a novel because it is so tight. Right. Uh, it is the one play. It is the play in which the the action actually takes place in a day. Um, actually, that's not a very good reason. Let me think of another reason why I chose it. I really like it, and I was I having written about Prospero before. I was aware that there were some unexplored parts of it that I wanted to explore. Which which play do you think will be the hardest in the series? What? Which which play do you think will be the hardest? Uh, I think Hamlet without a doubt. Number one, it's very long. 
Number two, I don't know how, um, I don't know what the equivalents are going to be. I think Macbeth, which is being done by Yo Nesbo, uh-huh. um, it, it is about crime, and he's the crime writer, so I yes. really, really go to town on it. Um, nobody's doing the history plays, I don't think, which, which are the plays on which Shakespeare made his fortune. Oh, it was the history plays. It wasn't the ones that we now think of as, as classics. So it was uh, The Wars of the Roses, uh, those plays, Henry V, and the reason for that, says the, says the Shakespeare guys and the historians, is that English people before that time had not had a way of, of knowing their own history in uh, their own history had not been mirrored back to them before that time. You could go and visit Westminster Abbey and see some of the tombs of the kings and get people explaining to you, but but the the idea that you could put on the Battle of Agincourt, which people had heard of, but it was all sort of word of mouth and rumor and gossip and stuff, uh, to see it presented must have been deeply thrilling for them. And that is, in fact, the first Shakespeare that I ever saw. I saw it saw it when I was about five because the movie came out. It was Laurence Olivier. Yeah. Uh, and my parents wanted to go see it, but they couldn't get a babysitter. <laughs> so they, they took the kids, myself and my brother, and we were just told to stay quiet and not say anything. And there we were watching this Shakespeare play. And I can still remember the flight of arrows scene. And and you, do you remember what it felt like for you to see that play at that age? Well, I think it was probably, you know, those things sink into your uh, Jungian subconscious in some way. I, I also saw Snow White at that time, which absolutely terrified me. Uh, not <sighs> the Seven Dwarfs or any of that, but the transformation scene where the uh, stepmother drinks the potion and turns into this other person just scared the pants off me. Um, so, yeah, so it goes back to that time, and I, I didn't see very many movies as a child because we were mostly up in the woods. But I did see those two, and I remember the Shakespeare, and I, I took my, my child to see Hamlet when she was um, seven going on eight, she and her friend, and I just told them, count the number of dead people. So they had their little list. They were marking them all off and asking questions like, does it matter if they died right before the play? Does it matter if they died off stage? <laughs> Do Rosencrantz and Guildenstern count? And they came up with a grand total, which was, I think, something like 14 or 15. Were they off or were they right? I think they were pretty right. It's interesting, you know, what, what this immediately makes me think of is how your re- re-reading um, of, of The Tempest then started make you think how many, how many imprisonments are there? In The Tempest? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, I, think, I think my grand total is probably correct. You know that a um, hundred years ago, when I was a graduate student, I had a, a, my advisor was a man named Victor Brombert, who taught at, at Princeton, and he wrote a book which may interest you at some point called The Romantic Prison. 
Oh yeah, you know it. Romantic. Yeah. Yeah. So he he begins with Pascal, and I don't know that he has any anything about Shakespeare, but he looks at the image of the prison in literature. Of and course, the Count of Monte Cristo, the Man yeah. in the Iron Mask. Um, Stendhal. I mean, so many so many writers have been interested yes. in imprisonment. Exactly. Uh, well, I think it's one of the big human motifs um, of of the post hunter gatherer age, because of course, amongst hunter gatherers, there weren't any prisons. Fascinating. A, a completely different, Margaret. I'm, I'm wondering, because I, I remember coming to McNally Jackson um, in, in New York and I think seeing the launch of what was called the Long Pen. Yes. Is this something that continues? Oh, yes. You can find it online at the following website, uh, S-Y-N-G-R-A. F-F-I dot com. And what is it? What is it? Okay. It, because I found it fascinating when I saw it. Yeah. Um, Are you familiar with um, Star Trek? <laughs> I think your question presupposes that I mightn't be. I, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm not very familiar. You know, when I came to this country many decades ago, I had never seen it, and I... I, I kept hearing uh, the words beat me up, Scotty, but it was wrong, of course. Beam me up. I know, I know. Scotty. <laughs> anyway, so tell, tell me. Yeah. A procedure in which Captain Kirk disintegrates into pixels yeah. and then reforms in another location. Right. That's what the long pen is. The original, which is what you write at your end, disintegrates into pixels and becomes a physical object in a remote location, namely everything you've written. So as you might assume, it is now being used in banking, business, real estate, um, those kinds of things. Uh, it is still possible to do remote book signings with it or even digital book signings, all of those kinds of things. And I, I predict that now that the paper book has not faded from view the way everybody said it was going to, uh, four years ago, that we will uh, bring that back as one of the things that the long pen can do. But uh, think of, for instance, being in the United States and somebody in, say, pick a country, somebody in Germany needs a signed docu document from you right now. Um, if you send it by courier, that would probably take three days. It would have to go through customs, have to go on a plane, it would have to go through customs and all the rest of it and then be delivered to your door. Um, but with Syngraphy, you can have it um, in minutes, in seconds. I remember the magic. Um, it is magical watching it. Yeah. Thing. It really was, seeing you do it was magical at that bookstore. And it, I remember the magic of, of, um, of the fax machine. Uh, yeah, I remember that, too, and at, at the time we all thought, oh, isn't this wonderful, but then pretty soon we were saying, why am I getting all these ads on coming out of my fax? That's right, and and the early fax machines had that terminal paper that sort of yeah. fades and, and disintegrates, and right. something else I wanted to ask you about is I, I read, but I didn't quite understand what the future library is. All right, let me explain it to you. The artist is Katie Patterson, 
You can find the Future Library at futurelibrary.no, which stands for Norway, not no. So futurelibrary.no. A forest has been planted near Oslo, which will grow for a hundred years. In every year of that hundred years, a different writer from around the world, in many different languages, uh, will be asked to submit a manuscript of uh, unknown kind and content to the future library in a sealed box. And in year 100, the boxes will all be opened and enough trees will be cut from the forest that will have grown to make the paper to print an anthology of the future library. It's such a um, it, it's a tremendous idea because you're you're projecting something in a future you won't see. It's a very hopeful idea yeah. because it assumes there, the forest will grow, there will be people, they will be able to read, they'll be interested in reading books. Uh, so all of these things are, are very hopeful ideas, and for that reason, it got a lot of press around the world. But I, I, I believe in that hope. You know, you, you spoke earlier on about, about books maybe going out of fashion, as had been predicted no, four I, or five years ago. I, I still think that people crave tactility, what I often to re- refer to as tactile inebriation that books do provide. That turns to, out to be true, and it also seems that, that you can assimilate uh, printed pages better than you can assimilate Uh, things that are just online. So online is a great place to get the latest news, but it's not a great place to read War and Peace. But you, you, but what's interesting about about you in this regard is that it isn't books versus e-books. It's there's there's a real ampersand between the two. I think each technology is good for something. Right. So they're not always good at the same things, but. They wouldn't be there if they were not good at something. And e-books are excellent for traveling. Uh, they're excellent for storing things, uh, storing large numbers of books if you have a small space. And I buy copies of my own books when I want to search them. It gives you a searchable text. When we're doing the proofreading of books and copy editing, we, we do it on paper, but we always have a digital one in front of us in case we need to. Um, check a certain word uh, or reference a certain character, we can find them very easily. You know, Margaret, as I, as I um, let you go to, to finish your packing, I, I found this, the line in, in the W.S. Merwin poem, which is called Place. And the first two lines of Merwin's poem go like this, on the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. Well, that fits in perfectly with the future library. Doesn't it? Norway. (laughs) It really, really does, and that's why I wanted to mention it. And I think on these notes of of hope, I I leave you and I I bid you farewell and see you soon and and travel travel well and have a wonderful time in England. You're going to be doing, I did look online to see where you're speaking and you're speaking in wonderful places. I'm taking my magic garment. 
Oh, excellent, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Disappear as you go. And, and, and listen, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And, and, and really, congratulations on, on the revisitation of Hagseed, of, of the Tempest into Hagseed. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me to talk to you and also lots of fun writing the book. Oh, well, that's wonderful. It's wonderful that it has been and it will be for the readers. Until very soon, Margaret. Okay. Bon voyage. Thank you. Bye-bye.